They are now. Is it on? Is it working? He did say there might be a delay. I said, don't mention that. It took a long time to get here last night. <laughs> so it's good to be here. I've got some Borough people with us. Becca, Becca's mum and dad, Terry and Anna, I know really well, and uh, grandma, mum, uh, young. So it's great because I got a phone call. Uh, phone. I got a phone call from Becca, and I thought, I recognise that accent. Uh, even though I've got a twang of cockney in it, only kidding. So anyway, my wife, Natasha, who's from Romford, always tells me that I should speak a bit slower, a bit slower than, because I'm in the south, is that right? So let's get one thing straight. Do you like mushy peas? Oh, you do? Wow. Yeah, can I have that mic here? All right, I'll just go here. You said it might be delayed, you never said it wouldn't work. <laughs> you probably don't need the mic, do you? You need the mic. I've got David and Colin with me as well if if you need mic. Sorry. Sorry. I'll just crack on you don't understand my accent. <laughs> so it's good to be here, it's good to um be with you guys on this special occasion really the carol service of the church and you won't know this but that song is my favorite of all carol songs how amazing is that and that isn't a lie i don't lie because i used to lie a lot and my life's part of a lie but i just want to tell the truth and um when becca asked me about speaking um the theme was peace about peace and uh, i thought right I can easily speak about that because I used to live in pieces and I live in peace and there's two ways we can have peace and once we think we get peace out of things. Now, a lot of the th songs that you hear in the carol theme and the Christmas theme is about family and do you know families were there before anything and families was the thing I wanted the most out of everything. So when I was a young lad, I was surrounded in my nana's house with Jesus. She sang about Jesus. She had a cross above her bed. But my nana drank a lot. She took a lot of prescribed drugs. And she was mentally ill. She went to a mental institution called St. Luke's and often tried to take her own life. And um, But she used to say to me she loved me and um, and that she was praying for me. And I just thought she's had too much rum. She's been on the drink or she's had too much like actual medication. So I was surrounded really by the theme of Christ and that song was often sang in my house. But one thing I know about Christmas, the main part of Christmas for me in them days when I was a kid was my mum came home for a week. When my mum left me when I was 10, it left something inside me that I couldn't explain. My granddad was uh, in the Second World War. My nana was in the Second World War. My granddad was like a no-mess guy. He like he didn't he didn't have like emotions and he just got on with it. And he worked double shifts at British Steel and he was a hard-working bloke and he was a tough man. And he lived in Cannon Street when he was a young kid and went to war and they had a prefabs. 
in Bramble's farm before they had houses there. So they had it really rough. And um, but my, my granddad worked very hard, and um, which is something I never did. I never thought about working hard. I wasn't interested in working hard. I was interested in me. But the reason I became like that was because when I was, say, when I was 10, and my nana uh, took me in and I stayed with her, my mum had gone. It was like I couldn't believe how I felt inside. There was like a real pain in my heart. I couldn't get rid of this thought that I wasn't part of my mum's life anymore and this man had got married to her. And so I couldn't describe it. All I know is I cried myself to sleep most nights. I um, I became a recluse. I was very vulnerable. And we moved, which made it worse. I lived in Berwick Hills at that time. But at 10 year old, I moved to this council estate called Berwick Hills. And my life seemed to have felt the bits moving to this place called Ormsby. And, um, but because on this estate, people had mums and dads and that family thing was probably something I thought I'm never going to have. And so I took the, my life in my own hands and I became um, a criminal. And I became a criminal basically overnight. I made a decision that at 11 and a half, nearly, nearly 11 and three quarters, I was never, ever going to let anyone make me cry again. I was sick of crying. I was sick of... Um, being down and I was sick of good things happening and then bad things happening so my mum had come for the week and then disappear in January and I was devastated so I decided that from now on I was never going to let out good happen again and I was in charge of what, what would happen in my life there was a local gang that, that were from Boyd Estate and Bramble's Farm and Thorntree and so I went with them and before long I had a real relationship with the police uh, I remember at 16, nearly 16, I found myself in the police station accused of murder. Uh, someone had been killed outside a nightclub called the Rock Garden, which was a punk and skinhead nightclub. Then it was found out that the, the lad died accidental. But So there was a lot of things went on, and even in that real horrific time when I was in the police station, I didn't really care. I didn't care because I'd become very, very hard-hearted up till later on in life, but I didn't care because I'd shut off from crying and having these emotional feelings and trying to be good for someone. My nana was getting worse and I eventually went to prison. I went to a detention centre called Medhamsley. And when I got out of Medhamsley Detention Centre, I went back home to my nana and granddad's and my granddad died and then the house got sold and at nearly 17, I was homeless. Um, but I thought, I don't care. I can stay wherever I want. I stay at loads of people's places. So I moved over the border, which is St Hilda's in Middlesbrough. And I moved in with a family called the Wards. And then I was living there for a long time. But I was in and out of prison. But I'd got involved with another gang, which went to football matches to fight. And so I'm going through this really quick, by the way, because I haven't got a lot of time. So I got involved with this other gang, which was like another family, like another big family. So I'd left one gang that was like a family, it was quite small, to this great big gang, which was like a family. And in these gangs, there was always someone who, who led them. And like I thought they were like a dad figure, someone who you want to be like. And they really should have called me Bungalow, because I had no upstairs. Because <laughs> I, would, I would do anything that people wanted me to do. 
And um, so I thought to get kind of peace, to get that love, you have to look good. So ever since I was made the decision not to cry anymore, I trained. So this isn't the plug, by the way, but take my book for free. But the book, in the book, you'll see a really tall, good-looking lad. I've always been in love with I can't help that. A tall, slim lad, because that's what I was. I was an athlete. I boxed, I played rugby, I did all the things that I thought would make me look good. I wore nice clothes, I went to these football matches. I worked for this guy called Tommy Harrison who had everything boxed off, which means like, you know, he was like a gangster type figure. He was like involved with everything, mainly the counterfeit clothing. And I was working for him and my best friend was running the front line, which is a football crew. So everything that I did was to try and make Kenia feel better. So I was trying to be happy. But you know what? I'll tell you a story. I bought my house once with cash in, in, in the, on Herbert Street, number nine Herbert Street in the Farmsby. I had all the clothes you could ever think of, Armani suits, Versace suits, and Lacoste track suits, Fela Bjorn Borg track suits. I had trainers, and I had snakeskin and crocodile skin shoes. I also just recently bought myself some tortoise skin shoes. It takes me two hours to get the car. <laughs> it is a carol service, by the way. Christmas, Christmas tradition. So I had all these things, and I had the muscles and the good looks and the brown and the money and the. But you know, when I went home on the night to this house, I'd hang my tracksuit up or my 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 Mali suit or whatever I had on. And I'd sit there, and the little boy who used to cry himself to sleep on the bed on the bed on the stairs came back to life. I couldn't get rid of it because when you go to bed and when you're on your own, it's this that starts speaking to you. This is the hard drive of our bodies. I've studied our brain for a long time, my brain for a long time. In fact, I turned my car into a university. I've been studying in my car for a long time. I loved it yesterday, it took me six and a half hours to get to my, my, my stepdad's, uh, my, my wife's dad. And I listened to so many teaching tapes uh, on, the, on, the, on the car. But I realized what was missing. What was missing was I was trying to find peace. I was trying to tell this brain that everything was gonna be all right in things. When my nana died, which was the worst day of my life at that at this moment in time, she died, and it was like I can't believe it. I was 20 year old, and every anything I'd ever tried to be good for was now gone. And I was like a lemonade bottle that got shook, and the bottle lid come off, and I just got worse. If, if I could have been any worse, I got worse. And I was 20 year old, and I went mad. I went crazy and I moved from Middlesbrough to Wakefield. I got sent to jail again in Leeds. I'd been in jail quite a lot through the football violence. I'd been stabbed in it with hammers and I was told to keep it down a bit. So I can't tell you too much, but I've had a lot of things. My finger chopped off. I've had my arm cut open, all kinds of things. I'm still good looking, but I've still got all these scars in my face, you know. And all of them things never deterred me 
to stop doing this bad stuff. Because like Jesus said, what is good will become bad. And what is bad will become good. And what is light will become darkness. And what is darkness will become light. And for me, being bad was good. Because I thought that's what would make me feel good, being bad. And it had been, it just become second nature for Graham to be bad. And so I couldn't see a way out. And then I became a, a, a very, very, very serious addict of alcohol. I drank and drank and drank and drank till I went unconscious every single day for about a year. And where I sat, sat in, in Middlesbrough, the red light district on Grange Road, we'd shut all the lights out with the air rifles so that the police couldn't look down the street and see people. But it was full of girls selling the, for drugs. And I was there on the bench. And that bench became my home for three years. And I sat on that bench drinking and drinking and drinking, as I said. And the second year, the, the reason I was drinking was to get rid of these memories, the guilt, the shame, all the things that had been going on in my head that I could do years ago with the clothes and going out and being with lads and being with a group. And I didn't have that no more. I had a bench and I had a bottle. And that wasn't enough. So I noticed the lads were, and the lasses were taking heroin. So I took heroin, but I still drank a lot. The smoke crack cocaine, I took a smoke crack cocaine. I even snorted paracetamol. It never did out of me, I just didn't get a headache. <laughs> so I'm still pulling them crackers. There's only Terry and Anne can understand me. <laughs> so I, um, I, I was gone. I'd become a tramp, and um, I don't know what it is about Graham. I always wanted to be the best dressed, the, the, the best this, the, I became the best tramp. <laughs> it's a bad status to have, isn't it? But I'd become this tramp that no one really wanted to know. Nobody, and my best friend, my best friend, Somalian, he came to me on the bench and said, Graham, he was crying. He said, please don't come to our house anymore. Haley, his, his girlfriend at the time, and the kids were scared. He said, you came the other night and you were sick everywhere. I thought I'd tell you this before your tea. But he said, you were sick everywhere. You'd knocked the jardinier off the thing and smashed it. You let the dog out, it got run over. You, you can't come back. And do you know what I thought? So what? I won't care. And he went, and I didn't see him after that for a while. But I didn't care. But the reason I'm telling you that is because nobody wanted to know me. No one wanted to come near me. I was a six foot six, drunk, drug addict, out of control. Nobody wanted to know me and I stunk really badly. I'd have my socks surgically removed. I had my same clothes on for months. Nobody wanted to know me. Do you get the picture? <laughs> And one night, this story's going to get good now, by the way. In March 1996, these group of lads come. They were called Teen Challenge. Not the lads weren't called Teen Challenge, but that's what they were with, this team of lads. And there was a man called Patrick Hinton, who was a local, he had loads of supermarkets. And he, he had this vision about having Teen Challenge Teesside. And there was a lad called Pete Conroy and Jimmy Legg. He sent them on 
the training. Then they came back and they trained other people to go out on the streets. And they had some visitors from Teen Challenge uh, Wales. And um, they had a lad from Wigan called Brian Wade. And Brian Wade came up to me and said, do you know Jesus loves you? And I chased him and told him to go away politely. I think I said something like, please leave me alone in French. See, I can speak French. So he went, they went anyway, but the next week they came again. And they were there every Friday. And what they were doing was telling people about Jesus and how he loved you. And one day I said to this lad called Aidan Poulter, he sat down, he went to your church, didn't he, Teddy? And I'm, he, I said to him, listen, mate, I need to tell you something. There's no such thing as love. That word is a man-made manipulation tool. If you say you love somebody, do what you want. And as for Jesus, my nana sang about Jesus all her life. She used to talk to him. She had a terrible life. So go away. I don't want to know about love and Jesus. I don't care. But the, on the 9th of August, 1996, I went to a coma. And um, there were several major things wrong with me. Now, my mother, if you watch the video, my mother disowned me when I was 22. This was, I was 32 now, 10 years later. She talked about it in the video, my mum. And um, she, she was asked to come to the hospital. And my mum's response was, when he's dead, ring me up and I'll come and identify the body for the coroner for legal reasons. I had a son, he's dead already. But do that and I'll come. Anyway, after six days, she came to the hospital. Tony had convinced her she had to come. And she came to the hospital with my stepdad and we took into a room uh, in the hospital and Dr. Cole Smith, who was a consultant, said, your son is dead now. There's nothing we can do for him. These are the forms we want you to go and consider turning the machine off. And my mum said, give me a couple of hours. Now, my mum, if my wife was here, she was, she'd tell you she was a very, very hard woman, very hard talking with a few French words in. And she told it how it was. And my mum was at that hospital, but she used this word that she would never use. And she said to Tony, I feel compassion for Graham. She didn't even remember saying that word. But what she did say was, I need a few hours before I make a decision. Teen Challenge lads were looking for me, Pete and everyone on the street were looking for me and they came to the hospital and they came into the room and prayed for me. They said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, give this man new life. And I woke up. I pulled the ventilator out my throat because I was choking. And my mum went and got the consultants. She had the forms in her hand and said, I thought you said he was dead. Now, all the consultant was, <laughs> could say was, he'd made a remarkable recovery. <laughs> But I was alive, he did some tests on me, stuck some pins in my feet and looked in my eyelids and all that, see if I still had blue eyes, only kidding. And then said he's, 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 back out, he's out the coma. And um, so the next day my mum was there, I was talking to her, and she told me that story and I said, who did they pray to? And she said, Jesus. And I said, what does he want to know about a scumbag like me for? I didn't really didn't understand about this Jesus, that he loved people, that he didn't come for the the healthy, he came for the sick, he came for people who were lost. 
with all the things in the world that you find want to find peace in, you don't find them. I only found pieces. I was in pieces. I've seen so many people over the years who were in pieces, but I still needed a goal. And very quickly, I'm going to tell you something. I came out of hospital with one thing on my mind, not Jesus, didn't want to know him, didn't want to drink, didn't want to take drugs, didn't want to smoke, didn't know about the criminal stuff, didn't know about the fighting. But I did know one thing, I wanted to be there for people to talk to. Because when I was 10 and my mum left, I wanted someone to talk to me. I wanted someone to say they loved me and they believed in me and they cared for me. And there was no one there to do that. My nana was too poorly. She was having electric shock treatment and all that, Kelly on. She was just too ill to tell me that. She told me, but she was always drunk when she said it. Oh, not like actual stuff. I came up with a purpose. And in 1996, I went to an Alpha course. And on that Alpha course, I made the decision on November the 9th, 1996, a quarter three, to ask if this Jesus, that was, or these tell me, loved me. And I could understand why they believed that. I couldn't understand that word, love. But I asked him if he was real, would he come into my life and help me? And if he did, then I would tell everyone for the rest of my life that he was real and that he loved them. And there and then in this place called Broccoli Hall in Saltburn, I fell into my seat and I started crying. Now let me tell you something, I'd never cried sober for anyone. You cry when you're drunk about anything, don't you? Like a leaf fell off a tree or a cat crossed the road. <laughs> but I was crying, I was sobbing. But these were tears of hope and joy. I knew that someone loved me, I knew it in here. And then I went on this promise, 10 o'clock that night I went to my bench. I started telling her I didn't know about the Bible, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know nothing. I just went and told people about Jesus. I went to St. Aidan's Church, which Terry and Anne were leaders. I went to that church. You were there, weren't you? I went to that church, St. Aidan's, at Christmas, Christmas Day. And I give, helped give the food out to people. And I walked home from there, and I couldn't believe it. But the problem is, when you live at home and you live in the same area, people see a man and not a miracle. But 27 years later, I'm still in Middlesbrough. I'm from Middlesbrough. I live in Dalton. I don't mind that error. But I, am, I live in Dalton now, that's the truth. But I am from Middlesbrough. I'm a Borough lad, even though Borough got beat today. But I met Natasha. We had two boys. And having two boys, I had my own family. And I've got a massive family. You know, this family here, I know I've got my brothers and sisters from Borough, but... Being truthful, you's are my family. I've just met yous, new family. You know, put me up in a hotel, take me for food, help me out. You don't even know me, but that's family. That's what family do. And the one thing I realised that all them years and years and years that I was looking for peace and joy and all that in me and the way I looked and the things I had. And they're waiting for my mum to come on for, for a week and then leaving and then being devastated. I don't need that. All I needed was Jesus within me. And on November the 9th, 1996, a quarter three, that's what happened. And I've been everywhere 
I've been all around the, the world now. I've been to Istanbul and Poland and my book's everywhere. It's not to do with me, it's to do with Jesus and everything I live for and every single day of my life. There isn't one day gone by for the last 27 years that I haven't gone and told someone about Jesus. If I'm in my house and I haven't told them, I'll just go out, Tasha will tell you, and I'll find someone. But in the early days, my mate Martin used to laugh about it. He used to say, I seen Graham the other day, he had someone in a headlock telling him about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they used to say, you're in trouble if you get on a bus with me. <laughs> but that's what my life's driven with. It's about Jesus. And this Christmas, you know, your life, if you don't know Jesus, talk to the leaders here. Come and see Duncan and Jill and Emma and the rest of the leaders that are here. Get on the Alpha course. It's an amazing course. You get fed, don't you? You get fed here as well. I'm coming. <laughs> so it's an amazing course, and it's a very relaxed way to find Jesus. But I thank God every day for that course because that is where I started to begin my journey. And like I say, having my two boys, Caleb and Boaz, and my wife, Natasha, is like the icing on the cake for me. So God bless you all, and uh, have a fantastic and amazing Christmas. God bless.